Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. For even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among whom was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, you've heard from us this morning as we have prayed and confessed and sang. Now we would hear a word from you. Be with the one who preaches. Give him clarity of mind and guard his lips that he would rightly divide your word of truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. In this text, we find Paul in the city of Athens, specifically at an outdoor venue called the Areopagus. This was the place where the judicial court in Athens would meet to try criminal cases. And it was also the place where the philosophers would gather to discuss and debate their various philosophical views. Paul was here by invitation of two philosophical groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Some of their numbers had heard Paul in the marketplace as he preached about Christ, and they wanted to hear more about this strange foreign God who had risen from the dead. So they invited him here to give a more detailed and more complete description of what his religion was. Now, the city of Athens was a city that was steeped in idolatry. Historians regard regard Athens as probably the most idolatrous city in the known world. One historian, I can't remember what his name was, he said you could find more gods in Athens than people. 
And in the worship of their gods, they erected temples and altars throughout the city. The, the city was literally strewn with temples and altars to these false gods. They did not worship these gods out of love or adoration as we worship our God. They worshiped these gods out of fear. Because if they did not give them the proper honor, if they did not give them the proper respect, the gods would afflict them with storms and earthquakes and plagues and famines. So they came out of fear. And they were also fearful that there might be a God, remember they worshipped many, there might be a God that they had not been made aware of. And they were afraid if they did not honor that God, he might afflict them as well. So they erected altars throughout the city with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now as Paul came to the area Pagus to preach to these, these uh, philosophers, he passed one of these altars that had been erected to the unknown God. And he tells them, I'm here to tell you, this God who is unknown to you, I know him. I know him. And he begins by declaring to the Athenians that this God that they did not know is sovereign in creation. Now in Paul's audience, there were two views predominantly about who God is and the origin of the universe. The Epicureans did not believe in a supreme being. Now, they believed in the minor gods that they worshipped in Athens, but these gods were not really gods at all. But they did not believe in a supreme being, and they did not believe that any god created the universe. They believed that space and matter always existed. They were eternal. And they believed that the universe evolved through natural forces alone into its present state. The Stoic philosophers did believe in one God, but they did not believe he was a personal God who transcends time and space. For them, God was an impersonal force of reason and logic that pervaded the universe. In essence, they believed that God was the universe and the universe was God. So Paul begins by saying, God, the, God is eternal, the universe is not. And the universe is not the personification of God. There is one God, one true God, and everything that exists exists because he created it out of nothing. In Genesis 1.1, this is a verse that's familiar to all of us, Moses wrote this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, in the vast expanse of eternity that stretched back prior to Genesis 1-1, there was God dwelling in majesty and glory and absolutely nothing else. Space didn't exist. And I'm not just talking about the vastness of outer space. I mean there was no physical dimension with width, and length and height for anything to exist or move. Matter didn't exist. There was absolutely nothing with volume or mass or physical substance. And time didn't exist. There was no progression from the past through the present into the future. There was no space. There was no matter. There was no time. There was only God and nothing else. 
And then there was something else. For God spoke, and space and matter and time came into existence, forming the cosmos, a cosmos filled with billions upon billions of stars and planets and moons and comets and asteroids. God spoke, and this formless void became a habitable world, teeming with millions of species of plants and animals. God spoke, and there was man, male and female, made in the image of God. And he did all this in six days. And God was able to do all this. He was able to conceive creation. He was able to execute his works of creation because Paul says that he is Lord of heaven and earth. In other words... He is sovereign. His sovereignty flows from his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence. God is able to do exactly as he pleases. And it pleased the God that we worship to create the universe and everything that is in it. Now, the Bible doesn't reveal... Um, why God created the universe, as far as I can find. It doesn't really give us his motivation. But it does reveal his purpose in creating everything that exists. First, God created the world for us. For us. He created this world to be a habitation for those people, who, those who were made in his image and every other creature that he made. And he created the universe in such a way that it revealed proof of his existence. He created the universe in such a way that if we would objectively survey the vastness of it, the complexity of it, the order of it, the beauty of it, we could only conclude that there is a creator God. Albert Einstein, let me back up just a minute. This may hurt your feelings. But God did not create you because he needed you. God did not create spinning galaxies and plants growing and animals feeding because he was bored and needed to be entertained. God did not create angelic and human beings because he was lonely and needed our fellowship. In that vast expanse of eternity that stretched back prior to creation, God had no unmet wants or needs. God is, and he always has been, completely fulfilled in the fellowship of the Trinity. Albert Einstein, uh, the greatest scientific mind of the 20th century, maybe the greatest scientific mind of all time, was not a religious man, but he believed in God. Albert Einstein believed that the universe itself was proof in the existence of a creator. I want to read just an excerpt of a, an interview that Albert Einstein gave in 1930. Very interesting. And I quote, The human mind, no matter how highly trained, cannot grasp the universe. 
We are in the position of a little child entering a huge library whose walls are covered to, to the ceiling with books in many different tongues. The child knows that someone must have written those books. It does not know how, who, or why. It does not understand the languages in which they are written. The child notes a definite plan in the arrangements of the book, a mysterious order which it does not comprehend, but only dimly suspects. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of the human mind, even the greatest and most cultured toward God. We see the universe mysteriously arranged, obeying certain laws, but we understand the laws only dimly. Our limited minds cannot grasp the mysterious force that sways the constellations. I said earlier that Albert Einstein was not a religious man. He believed in God, but he did not believe in a personal God. Like the Stoics, he believed God was an impersonal force of reason and logic that pervaded the universe. He was essentially a pantheist. But even in his misconception about God, his sinful misconception about God. He could not escape the evidence that the universe provided him that God exists. And everything here is because of our great God. Well, God is not only sovereign in creation, but he is also sovereign in human history. I want you to look with me at verses 26 and 28 again, or 26 through 28. Paul wrote, or said this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. We'll stop there. The first thing we need to see from this verse is that God has been at work sovereignly in the propagation of the human race just as much as he was in the creation of Adam and Eve. Now, I understand that each one of us is the product of the physical union of our parents. I understand that. And I understand that our physiology can be explained scientifically as the recombining of the DNA of all of our ancestors who came before us. I understand that. But we are more than just incidental outcomes in a natural biological process. God was actively involved in the conception, the growth in the womb, and in the birth of every single human being who has ever lived. We exist because God ordained that we would exist individually. They need to move this mic. God ordained that each one of us by name would be born. The psalmist puts it this way, in Psalm 139, 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You're here because God ordained that you would be here. Well, not only is God sovereignly at work in the propagation of the human race, he is also sovereignly at work in the parameters of human existence. Look, look with me, if you will, again, Verse 26, and this time we'll read, yeah, just 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, and this is the part I want you to see, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. 
God ordained everything that sustains and regulates human life here on planet Earth. God determined when you would live. He determined where you would live. And he determined how you would live. Every circumstance, every naturally occurring event, every human decision that resulted in us being where we are and as we are was determined by God. God is sovereign. And since he is sovereign, he exercises absolute and complete control over everything in this universe. He controls the most significant thing, like the rise and fall of nations, and he controls the insignificant things, like a sparrow falling to the ground. And he exercises his control over everything to ensure that his eternal purpose for this world is accomplished. The prophet Isaiah put it this way, describing the sovereignty of God in human history. This is Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and for an ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God's sovereignty can be described this way. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. In other words, everything that happens in this universe, God ordained for it to come to pass in eternity past. And then God accomplishes what he has ordained by either causing it directly to happen himself or by expressly permitting it to happen. You know, this doesn't mean when we talk about the sovereignty of God that everything caused by the, everything in the universe is caused by the direct and immediate action of God. And it does not mean that God forces people to do things against their will. That is not how God exercises his sovereignty. And I want us to consider, first of all, the natural world. And maybe it'll make a little more sense. When God created the universe, he included in its design certain physical laws that govern how the universe works. The course of stars and planets, the changing of seasons, the weather pat patterns that circle around the earth. All of this was according to the fixed laws that God put in place from the very beginning. And ordinarily, God does not interfere with nature. He lets nature do what he designed it to do. But then, mysteriously, God weaves his sovereign will through those natural occurring events and all the results and all the contingencies that they produce. And he does so to ensure that his eternal purpose is accomplished. Now, I don't know how God does that. I don't know how God just lets weather and, and, and the orbiting of planets, I don't know how he lets all of that just happen according to physical laws and then weaves his sovereign will through it. To, I don't know how he does that, but I'm not God. And neither are you. And then let's consider human will. 
God has endowed every one of us with a certain amount of autonomy. God gave us the power to choose between good and evil, to choose between right and wrong. And he also gave us the power to make lifestyle decisions. We are free to choose our occupation, our place of residence, who we would marry or if we would marry. We're free to choose our friends. We're free to choose the books we read. We're free to choose what food we'll eat. We're free to choose where we'll travel or if we'll stay home. We're free, free to choose our political party. We're free to choose everything. And ordinarily, God does not interfere with the choices we make. He allows us to choose as we will. And then he just lets our choices play themselves out, both good and bad. People will often say, well, how, how, how can there be a God when you look at all of the violence and, and all of the crime and all of the, the hunger that, that goes on and, and the disease that goes on in the world? Because God has allowed us to choose. And we make some bad choices. But then God mysteriously weaves his sovereign will through the choices we make and all the results and contingencies that they produce to ensure that his eternal purpose is accomplished. And again, I don't know how God does that, but he does. We are free to choose, but God accomplishes his purpose. This is from Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now, having said what I've said, it doesn't mean that God cannot or does not override nature or human will. He caused the sun to stay in the same place for an entire day so that Israel could win a victory over its enemy. He parted the Red Sea so that Israel could escape bondage in Egypt. He stopped a persecutor of the church from going to Damascus and imprisoning, imprisoning Christians. God does sometimes intervene. He does sometimes cure of cancer. He does sometimes save us from dangers when there is no natural explanation for our saving. But ordinarily, God doesn't. But God is working both in nature and in our decisions to ensure that his eternal purpose is accomplished. And then Paul reveals what that eternal purpose is in verses 26 and 27. Look at that. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, and get this, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. God is working in nature, he is working in our choices for this purpose, to bring to himself a people for himself. God is working in all things to bring his elect to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That is his purpose for this world. Well, God is sovereign in creation. He is sovereign in human history, and he is also sovereign in judgment. Look at verse 30, if you would. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has marked out a day when there will be a full accounting and a final reckoning for humanity. A day when God will exercise his perfect judgment against every transgression of his holy law. The law that reflects his holiness and righteousness. The law that he has written on every human heart. The law that he recorded in the Ten Commandments. The law that he has imposed on every one of us. And God will judge humanity because he has a right to judge humanity. You and I are not self-existent beings. We are here only because God made us. And he made us for a purpose. Just like he has a purpose in everything he does. In Genesis 1.26, we read this about the creation of Adam and Eve. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, it seems reasonable that if we've been made in the image of God, that we were made to reflect God, that we were made to be like God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the answer to question one says this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God created us to show him to the rest of creation. He made us to glorify him and manifest him to the rest of creation and to enjoy his fellowship for all eternity. But when we sin, when we transgress the law of God, we are not reflecting God at all. We are not magnifying him to the rest of creation. We are denying him. We are rejecting him. When we sin, when we transgress his law, we are not living in joyous fellowship with God. We're rebelling against him. We're calling him our enemy. So yes, God has a right to judge us. We're not fulfilling the purpose that our creator ordained for us. Not only does God have the right to judge us, but he must judge us. God could not refrain from judging us if he wanted to. Because God's very nature is justice. Now when I say that God is just, I don't mean that there's just a part of God that is just. There's not one part of God that is just and another part of God that is merciful and another part of God that is love and another part. That is not how the attributes of God work. When we say that God is just, what we're saying is the whole of God's nature, the entirety of his being is just. And if God was to refrain from executing justice against sin, he would be rejecting himself. And God cannot, he will not reject himself. So there is going to be a final judgment for sin. Someday most of humanity will stand before Christ, the one they denied, the one they killed, the one who has been resurrected and has ascended into heaven. Someday they will stand before Christ to be judged. And Christ keeps perfect 
records. He will reveal every sinful thought, every sinful desire, every sinful action, and he will pronounce guilt. The writer of Hebrews puts this standing before Christ and having everything revealed this way. In Hebrews 4.13, he writes, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom they must give account. And when Christ pronounces their guilt, he will then pronounce their punishment. And the punishment for sin is recompense with the crimes that have been committed. When people sin against God, when they transgress his law, when they deny his son, what they're saying is, I don't want or need God. And the punishment in the next life is, you're going to get to live in eternity without God. Here's what, here's what the writer of Hebrews, or um, I've lost my place. Anyway, we are going to be condemned to eternal destruction away from the presence of God. Can you imagine living in a place where God's influence is not present? Well, that's what hell is. Now, someday, again, some people are going to stand before God and, and receive their final judgment. But for some, God has already executed his judgment against sin. God provided a way that his justice against sin could be satisfied and yet we would be spared from having to pay the penalty for it. He sent his son to die a criminal's death on a Roman cross. His son took our sins upon him. He took our guilt upon him. And God the Father poured out on his son the outpouring of his eternal wrath against our sins. You know, it's, it's, it's not an accident that when Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's no accident that the world turned dark. It's no accident that the earth shook and dead were raised from the grave. That was the outpouring of God's wrath on his son for our sins. But God, Christ's sacrifice, while it is sufficient for all, it is only effective for some. It is only effective for those who will believe on him and receive him. It is only effective for those who will hear his voice and follow him. I want to conclude with this. At the end of this passage, Luke records the responses to Paul's message. I want you to look with me at verse uh, 32 and following. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Three responses to Paul's message. First, some rejected it out of hand, just totally rejected it. Others were somewhat convinced, but they were not fully persuaded. They needed to hear more. But then there were some who believed to the saving of their souls. And God is sovereign in this too. For we read in Acts 
1348, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Beloved God is sovereign in creation. He is sovereign in human history and he is sovereign in judgment. We worship a big God. Let's pray. Father, we would ask you because you are incomprehensible to us. Who you are and what you have done goes beyond our understanding. But help us just a little bit to understand you more, that we might love you more and that we might be more faithful to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.